Welcome back to PGRcast, podcast about life as a postgraduate researcher. My name is Luca, I'm a doctoral candidate in civil engineering, and in this episode, Rory and I are hosting a second-year PhD student, Michal Sanat, mechanical engineer who is researching an important part of a train. Well, hello, Michal. Welcome. Good to see you. Glad to be here. Thank you for taking the time. So um, could you please tell us more about your background and academic path that lead you to where you are now? Well, you see, I'm a a, a typical boy who was uh, born in Scotland, uh, Aberdeen specifically. It's a a nice area. It's it's a bit grey, but uh, it it does have a beach, (laughs) uh, at least. So I grew up there, um, went to school there. And I also went to, for my undergrad, I also went to university there Mm -hmm. because although I did apply for other places, University of Aberdeen was the first to just accept me. And I didn't need to, so there was higher education and there was advanced higher education. They were fine with me coming in with higher education. So quicker way to just get in, get started. Um, After that, basically, so living there, basically, I lived at home with my parents because we're from Aberdeen. And during the years near the end of the year, um, sorry, near the end of undergrad, nearly around the second last last year is where I sort of decided or had started thinking of, do I want to go? Do I actually do want to go into industry or do I want to continue something with something like this, but further? So basically, you could say that I started developing an interest in the more scientific side of engineering. And I kept on, I remember keeping on asking questions to like uh, my dad and Googling websites and stuff like that. Um, Just like wondering, like in industry, do you get to do these like scientific side of engineering? You know, do you still do these complex mathematical analysis is there these complex experiments all these kind of stuff and online from what i've seen from you know youtube all these advices online most of them majority majority of them have said like no it's not really that kind of um area for this high scientific side with engineering so then i was thinking okay if i wanted to continue more in depth to the scientific side you know if i wanted to develop let's say in the industry they use all these softwares that does the calculations for them so they don't really need to although they i I can't say they don't need to do any calculations that's not true there is some scientific side to the industry but what i'm talking about is i wanted to go more in depth into the scientific side and more into the innovative side so rather than using let's say the softwares i have now could I develop a new software with a new method, a new methodology, you know, test out different devices that are without worrying about any industry standards. So just go to high lengths and see what works, stuff like um, stuff like that. This is the sort of idea. This is the sort of idea I started developing. I remember telling my dad this. Um, what should I do? My dad was like, just focus on the grades <laughs> and then we'll see you later on. Um, he, he, he just kept reminding me, just don't think about this too much now. Although it's, he was, he highlighted, this is good that you've started thinking about it. Just focus on the grade. Now you're in your last year of uni, just d- do the best you can now. And then 
it will be clearer what you can do. Focused on that. And then you could say I got um, decent enough results. Not saying I got like top or anything the best, but decent enough results. Then my dad started uh, advising me saying, from what you've told me, it seems like you're wanting more in this research direction, the scientific side. And he was saying, this is not to say that you can never go into industry, but um, you can, that path seems to be the best ways to start off in the academic field and get, you know, to get, go further into the scientific side. And then you could see there are position, certain positions, although they can be a bit rare in industry that does require more scientific stuff. But normally you could see in the requirements of stuff, they would require someone who has done, let's say a PhD or some research that is relevant to it. So seeing all this and also speaking to some people from the industry and some people from academia as well, uh, some people my dad kind of knew, they've also uh, highlighted this same kind of idea that it seems like the academy, academia might be a start and then going into industry. And one thing I was, um, one condition I had to sort of set myself is if I'm going to go into PhD, um, obviously there's the issue with money um, in the industry, you could get paid reasonable amount, not saying it's a big difference because there is tax on the industry. That's one thing people forget about. Um, uh, so for the industry, um, it, there was an issue with the money if I wanted to go into Kadu. So one condition I had to put myself is if I'm going to do like a PhD or further study, it's going to have to be funded. I can't go self-funded at all. And this is where basically I started looking into, you know, uh, started searching for PhDs that was in line with my interest. That was the main thing. Um, I would not do any other PhD. It has to be, try to be as specific as possible. This isn't to say that you will always get perfect one that will perfectly align your interests. That's not true. You can be lucky that could happen, but with, um, uh, what was I say? But basically I've tried to find one that was most in line with my interest as possible. And that there was funding. And then this is where I came to the academia path, found one opportunity. Um, uh, it took about four or six months of <laughs> interviews and testing. Um, I can, speak further about that maybe later on. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't easy, but um, they did offer me full funding, which was good. And that and the topic was good enough. Um, so that kind of led me to basically, you know, I was one of the ones that instead of going into the industry, I actually gave up myself, you know, sacrificed myself to go into this academia more scientific field to try and develop more solutions all, all for use, all for use, you know, <laughs> we're making more better engineering stuff uh, to help all use out later on. Hopefully, you know, faster cars or maybe not faster, cheaper trains, you know, just keep uh, keep a lookout on that. Excellent. It's a hot topic today, yeah, cheaper trains. Hot topic. Yeah, so Congratulations for getting a full scholarship and uh, taking the offer. And what is your research topic? Can you explain the research that research topic? A, okay, yeah. so I've gave a little hint there, cheaper trains, hopefully. Um, so the research topic, basically, with all this, um, there's this ambition now, or there's this goal with a lot of countries that they want to 
do this net zero carbon stuff. So in order to achieve this, just, you know, broadly, they're going, if they want to achieve this, let's say, I think they've set the goal to 2050. I think there's different ones, but 2050, if they want to achieve that goal of having this transition of everything being just environmentally friendly and that all the research and development, innovation even, would have to start now Mm -hmm. for it to go through here. So one of the ones that need development and uh, or currently is in development is railway. Mm-hmm. And one key factor is so a lot of trains, the, they operate with diesel, mm-hmm. basically diesel engines. Another one that's now another way of operating these uh, trains is basically this thing called having a pantograph and a catenary interaction. What this catenary is, is basically a long electric wire. And this this long electric wire is basically, basically this is all, this wire is along the whole spam of all these tracks across UK. And this wire basically would carry this electricity. And to get this electricity to the train for it to move, you would need this device, a sprung device. And this device is known as the pantograph. And this pantograph, it's basically, if I, I don't know if I can use the camera or... I guess if if I put basically my left hand on the bottom of my elbow and I make this little diagonal shape here, the top, the right arm, the top of my right arm is like the pantograph head. And then this, the bottom of my left, uh, the elbow of my left arm is the, like the, the base of the pantograph. And you can kind of just imagine this pantograph scenario where when it goes through the wire, it will, the head will try to keep in contact with the wire as it's going, as the train is traveling at high speed. So as it's traveling at this high speed, obviously the pantograph is not going to stay still. It will vibrate. It will basically vibrate or oscillate or whatever. And this vibration needs this contact between the uh, the wire and the pantograph and this vibration needs to be of good quality to keep the train powered uh, well and basically keep it and to avoid also any dangers of this pantograph if it loses contact or if it vibrates too much there's a danger that it could cause this scenario called arsing where you have this like electric uh, disaster let's just say electric disaster it could happen another thing is it could also damage the wire itself um, and this would need further maintenance so keeping that vibration this contact as steady as possible and one thing to keep in mind and this is the key bit in the phd is you could say that this has been developed reasonably well if this if this pantograph and continuary interaction uh, is going through is just going through, you know, straight wires where the this pan, this wire and the pantograph doesn't change height much. Whereas realistically, the train's going to go through tunnels and level crossings. And in between these, if it's going to go through a tunnel, the wire is going to have to slope down. So the pantograph is going to have to move. And then if it's going to go through the level crossing, you, you're gonna, this is a place where trucks and large trucks and vehicles will have to move by the wire is going to have to be very slope high, like quite up. And from there, basically this pantograph is going to go through a lot of these 
you know different dynamics as it's um as it's as the train's traveling and right now this has caused quite a big problem in the industry to develop this further if they want to electrify let's say the whole of uk and get rid of diesel trains using this method there would have to be a lot of improvements with this sprung mass this pantograph the to keep the contact quality very good the main scenario i'm looking at in my phd is basically develop a so this pantograph one thing i forgot to explain this pantograph will have its own little suspension system that will play the major role although there is also another suspension system but let's say the base suspension system plays the major role of keeping that good contact with the wire and this suspension system needs to be improved you could say if any if the pantograph is going to go through tunnels you know and slope up to level crossings so the key bit in the phd you could say is developing or improving this suspension system um to enhance the pantograph interaction with the wire when it's going through at least the focus is when it's going through these large slopes going down and up another small side to the story there is this new passive device so the way a suspension suspension systems come is that they can have they can be purely mechanical like we would say this is passive or they could have some electrical control element to it this is mainly focusing on like mechanical suspension recently most sort of um dynamic or this vib- vibration sp- suppression elements have been like springs dampers um and this has been used a lot in car you can imagine a car suspension it will have that spring wrapped around this dash pod that would be the damper this there's a new element where from someone from university of cambridge and his name's malcolm uh malcolm smith he developed this new uh vibration control device and this device has been used in the formula 1 racing that's actually helped a team win the race because of this invention now my supervisor is trying to use this for different designs basically different mechanical designs if it's worked on the formula 1 then should obviously work for many applications so the key bit is basically incorporating this new design into the suspension system of the pantograph and another little unique thing about this is this is operating in a gas this the way the suspension works is in like a gas domain sort of way where it's based on like how the gas compresses extends and all this kind of stuff and it's incorporating this to this gas one is quite tricky and this is the phd core bit of it so yeah that's the overall idea of the research you could say sounds very exciting it's <laughs> must be very satisfying taking something that's been developed for such a kind of abstract purpose as formula 1 and then finding the real world applications to take this you know all of the money that gets put into formula 1 to then find ways to give that back to society must be quite satisfying exactly yeah, yeah yeah i mean one of the things that did interest me about this phd or what made me pick that was this new device um this seems to be the most advanced device in vibration mechanical or passive vibration suppression or one of the most advanced devices 
and the fact that it worked in Formula One and helped it win the race, it, as you said, it's quite satisfying to try and see and make this work for everyone, basically, or hopefully for all, a lot of applications. So yeah. For, for the uh, um, presumably vanishingly, vanishingly small proportion of the user base who, the listener base who do also follow Formula One, do you know which team was using this? Or you can you not say? Well, it is. It's available online. It's something you can easily find okay. out. If you type in, the device is called Inerter, not to be confused with Inverter. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so Inerter, I believe if you write it, it'll, be, it'll come up as if it's spelled wrong. But it's not. That's because it's a new invention. Yes. Um, if you type that in, Inerter Formula One, I think on YouTube, it will. There's a lot of articles that will tell you That's which great. team it was. It, and on YouTube, there's quite. A, there's one video I remember that highlighted. I did know who which team it was. I believe one team used it in secret. So it, it, there's a little bit of a, a story Probably behind some it. some controversy behind yeah. it, the FIA deciding who can use it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. because let's just say this, it was, it was that good that it got banned. <laughs> so one team started using it and it helped. And then other teams tried to sneak in and use it as well. Yeah. And then it just got banned. Well, that's great. I will, I'll make this now as a PGR cast promise is that after this recording, I will look up which team it was, and then we can record a very short part of the outro, letting people know how it was used and why it was banned. Exactly. That's a good deal. <laughs> so basically, this is targeted for the train operating companies, right? So mm -hmm. for producers of the trains that are using this device called Pantograph to basically run the trains on electricity. Exactly. So, but back to your... Um, research then is you are doing the experiments like physically or in the lab or how can you explain oh, yes, more yes. about that uh, there is a lot of sides to this there is the so obviously we have to there is no let okay one thing is there is no let's say precise computer model that can let's say replicate exactly what this is half what's you know, scientifically, what let's just say what the forces are or what whatever, you know, what the pressure is are um, from the industry. There is no software that can just tell us that. You could say there are some softwares in development for it, but we're currently also developing it as well. You could say for just a normal operation where it's not going up and down that much, there are some computer models that have been developed. But if it's going up and down, the up and the height is changing quite a lot going through these tunnels and up these level crossings. It's a different, it's going to have to be a more improved model. And this is, you could say, this is one bit that we're working on because there's not really any computer model to just type in and tell us this. First, we need to make our own computer model to sort of replicate um, these scenarios. One way to do this is we need to, because we have this pantograph device in our lab, so and we could go on to say the, later on about this, but um, we have this pantograph device. And this pantograph device that we have in the lab is the most premier uh, type. So this one is the one used for our high-speed trains, 125 miles per hour. Or at least this is the one used for, this is the highest speed um highest pantograph speed one i'm not saying the trains could travel faster but for the pantograph it's this is the highest one that it's been um, 
highest speed I think that's been used for in the UK. And we have this in our lab and a previous PhD has done a lot of testing on this, on the whole mechanism of it. And now we need to, if we're going to do this large height changes, this suspension, we need a more accurate or we need to further investigate the suspension system of this pantograph, the base suspension. And right now we have to do all this experiments to understand its behavior. What would happen if we pushed it down at this height? Is it the same as if we pulled it up, going up the height? The response could be completely different. Why is that? We have to set up this uh this we have this test setup that's meant to be representable of you know a real case pantograph or try to be as close uh, to a real uh, case pantograph as possible and then we would need to observe from the data what we get why this happens and from there basically try to build a model that can replicate this so yeah there is a lot of um experiments involved especially in the first year of my phd it was mainly it was mainly that. That's like the first stage is to get a good experiment set up, know the type of um, inputs. So know how, you know, what kind of, um, how you can replicate the scenario realistically. And with all that, get the, you, you'll know you'll have the, a fairly correct data, a reasonably good data that you can use to then build, let's say, models or equations, like complicated large equations to replicate it then from there you can use it you can use that computer model to try and find an improvement is the idea so right now it's basically making this setup to try and get a model computer model to represent it and then that's the first stage you could say yeah and then from there there'll be more experiments test if we do make the new design and incorporate it there'll be more testing to see physically how it's improved, but that will come later on in the PhD. Now, Luke has just uh, shown me a picture of your setup, and it is enormous. Yes. It makes sense. It would be quite complicated to recreate a whole, you know, electrified train track uh, yeah. in a lab environment. Uh, I presumably it's quite expensive to kind of set that up, put it together. Uh, do you, are you getting any funding from industry, or is the funding entirely yes. UK so, research? Or, yeah. So... I guess this is where I come into the second, uh, this other point that this PhD is a funded PhD, but this funded PhD is they they say the uni has managed to get it purely from the industry. So there is, it's not just me, it's a few people involved. So there is obviously there is the main one is Network Rail. They are basically in charge of the railway in the whole UK. And they can like decide what goes on. Um, I think uh, I don't know if it's Network Rail, but there's also RSSB. But I think they're interlinked. Or, there's some relation between them, and they can decide certain standards. If there's any changes, they sort of can decide. So Network Rail, especially um, one person in Network Rail, is really wanting to push getting these electrified trains on the track, and he wants this to be developed, you know, as quick and as um efficiently as possible because he he strongly feels that these can replace diesel trains and it's quite possible with a lot of development um so network rail is so this phd is also part of a a reasonably big project 
it's called uh, iPound to inerter for the Pantograph project. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this project is focused on this um, to develop this uh, network rail. And another industry is, uh, I believe they used, well, they're still called Brecken and Willis, but if you search the, they don't appear. They're actually, they come, another company called Waptech has sort of bought them. But on the contract, they're still called Bracken Willis, but I don't know the story. Anyways, they are the only manufacturers for this pantograph. So Network Rail basically buys these pantographs from Bracken Willis or Webtech. And both of them are working in this project. So the previous PhD student who did his research on developing this first model, you could say the first computational model, for the pantograph and he is still currently working on it uh, in this project as well uh, he's now a research associate but um this person uh basically for his phd they provided um a pantograph for them for the sake of the project to work on so we have this pantograph from the project to work on and hopefully develop an improvement from so yes, obviously all these things are expensive, but we're not buying it ourselves and just developing ourselves. This is involved with the manufacturer themselves. Um, so we're improving this for them in a way. So they will obviously give us the money or the, the stuff that is necessary so for us to test. It's yeah. like a symbiotic relationship really between academia and industry in this case. Exactly, yeah. And Network Rail is obviously going to prove you know, I, I can't say, I don't think I can say Network Rail will tell the manufacturers to give a, give them us this thing, but um, they will, with them being involved, obviously, we will get what we need to improve it. Um, but there are other, like, equipments that are, we would need to get ourselves. This is all related to the stuff that we need to get from the manufacturer. We can't just get ourselves. If we want, like, sensors, certain types of sensors to measure pressure, flow rate these can be quite expensive one particular sensor ended up costing 2500 <laughs> obviously i didn't pay for that <laughs> uh, this was but this comes again this the project itself gives a certain amount of budget funding for the stuff you would need for lab and stuff like that so that covers this kind of stuff so yeah <laughs> so you could say we're covered by some project funding at least but there's also a limit to the project funding we can't go we can't be too crazy just to... yeah you can't risk breaking your only equipment they give you <laughs> yeah yeah obviously no oh, excellent is there any other stakeholders uh, in the yes so uh -huh. network rail and Breckman willis are the industry ones that are involved mm -hmm. in this project another one is university of huddersfield mm -hmm. the university of huddersfield i believe they have an institution or like a research institution called the railway institution and they're quite they do a lot of research on pantographs but for this project they are the ones that has given us the computer model for the wire mm -hmm. so obviously if we want to improve this we need an interaction between the pantograph and the wire and they have good expertise in this wire so they will be the ones developing this and we basically need to work together to have this interaction between the pantograph and the wire in like a computer model to help us you know develop further improvements so and they have also done a few testing for us on the pantograph as well because because we have another they have their own pantograph as well and it's the same pantograph type we could also 
use this for further validation. If it works on our pantograph, let's test it on their pantograph. It works there. Okay, that's good. <laughs> good sign. That means the improvement is for all types of pantographs. So we also have them uh, there as well. And that's all the stakeholders, I think, involved in this project. Excellent. And um, in terms of the lab, right, can you say more about what's actually happening before and yeah, maybe before you enter the lab and okay. you've discussed a little bit what you what you're doing in and, and after, but yeah, maybe just that point that maybe it's well hidden for <laughs> most. <laughs> so, well, before the lab, um, well, there is a stage sort of like before you start coming into the lab is you start planning your experiments, basically. You you have to sort of, you can't do everything. You're limited with the space, the type of equipments you have, the type of um, all these sort of factors. So you're limited and you have to see what you can do or make full use of what you can do. This limited sort of factors that you've got and this is where you need to sort of start planning do i need what tests can i do realistically what can be replicated what what can't be replicated here's a good example so realistically if the pantograph is going to go through the uh, if the pantograph on the train this pantograph when it's traveling at these high speeds we one factor that is going to be important could be the aerodynamics. There's going to be a lot of wind hitting it. That's also going to play a big role. Realistically, this should be taken into consideration if we're wanting to improve it. But in the testing facility and the time of the project that we have, uh, we can't consider that, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is like one little example uh, where you need to see how you can narrow it down um, to what you can do. And this is like a little before the lab sort of thinking that you have to sort of start doing. From there, once you've kind of narrowed down to what you presumably think you can, you can do, is then when you need to sort of start to come into the lab, but you don't really get into it just yet because you can't. You have to start seeing, okay, do I have enough space? Uh, is, is this person finished with this lab, uh, finished with uh, this equipment? Can I use this? You know, you have to speak to the technicians. You have to speak to all these kind of people and uh, get all sorted out first. Yeah. Um, Risk assessment? There is that too, yeah. So before um, using any machinery in the lab, I think you'll have to write out a risk assessment. You have to say you're going to wear goggles. So when you need to wear goggles. You have to wear these safety boots. You'll have to, you know, be working. Uh, you have to have common sense when you're working. You know, don't have, there's a lot of wires for data collection and all that kind of stuff. Don't have these wires in bad places where someone could trip. Um, and obviously those tell you don't do anything silly. Don't lift anything heavy, um, even though sometimes I've been very tempted to think I can lift, you know, this heavy thing, you know, I reckon I can lift it, but obviously I have to, because of the health and safety, I'll get them to get the crane and lift it. But um, uh, personally, I personally feel like I can lift the heavy 
equipment's no problem. But um, getting back to the point, um, <laughs> <Famous last words. laughs> getting back to the point, um, yes, all these things, you have to fill out a risk assessment and all that kind of stuff, uh, health and safety stuff. But that's not really, um, I mean, that's quite a routine thing. It's not, um, it doesn't take that much of thinking. It's sort of, it's a standard thing. Yeah. That you just need to follow. Presumably there are a lot of other risk assessments in your lab that you can sort of start from. You don't yeah. need to start from scratch every time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's And it can just be made general. I mean, the testing, as long as you know what testing you're going to do, because that's needed in the risk assessment, as long as you know what testing you can do. And from there, you could sort of have an idea if there would be anything dangerous and you can highlight all that, then it's all fine. Um you yeah. can just basically point that out and the technicians will be aware. Um, another health and safety thing, well, it's, it's not like before the lab, but obviously there is certain times that you can only use certain machinery in the lab. You can't keep something switched on after a certain time. So you need to be aware of these kind of things. Yeah. As a biogeochemist, then a lot of that sounds extremely familiar, just as if you replace the dangers of, say, el- electrical dangers with acid or heat mm-hmm. then it's, it's pretty much the same idea where you there's a long planning process you probably are going to have to restrict your ambitions a little bit because of equipment or space or cost and so i'm sort of wondering as for your phd itself i presume it's still split into kind of the traditional three research chapters or because uh, uh, say as as a chemist i've mm-hmm. got mine split up into chapters that are looking at specific aspects of river systems either from different parts of the world or different chemicals and all of my analyses that are kind of grouped together and you have the same kind of um, thing y- you could say i wouldn't call it well from my side i wouldn't say i've got these chapters mm. but you could say i've got these stages or tasks in the project let's say where you have this like experimental bit, get the model, then the next bit would be the improvement bit, and then the next bit would be testing this improvement. And this would all sort of, I guess, feed into the PhD chapters. This would create like a little story yeah. in the PhD. Um, so this is from my side. Yeah. yeah, and could you break that into, for instance, I'm not sure exactly how publication tends to work in, in engineering, but would you maybe break down your different experiments yeah. into yeah, individual yeah. publishable things that build yeah. upon each other? Yeah, because you could, but you have to just make sure that it has novelty. Uh, if it does have good novelty, there's always a chance you can publish, split it to sections and publish all these papers, which would be, yeah, very good. Everyone wants to publish as many to hopefully make the Viva uh, very easy, much easier. Because uh, when you come into you know, if, if when you come to get the assessed on your PhD, if you already have papers published, they're you know they're not gonna be as strict, maybe, or you could be yourself more confident, I should say. Yeah, if because a... if it's been through the peer review process, yes, there might be some things that your examiners disagree with or question. Oh yeah, yeah. But there's a lot more evidence that the overall research environment agrees with you, at least on a level to say that it's publishable material which exactly that matters more than necessarily having got a positive result as long as you've shown that you've done the due process and you can Mm -hmm. do the research then that's enough for the phd 
Exactly. Yeah. If you have that, you can be confident that, you know, your, your PhD purpose is fine. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, how strict is the examiner going to be, how long it'll take. Um, and I'm not saying no one's going to pass perfectly like that, but you'll have changes. You'll need to make changes. But the worst case is when they completely fail you because they think what you've done has no purpose. That's what you want to avoid. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but they, hopefully if it can be split and public, get papers published for, uh, for these sort of stages, this would be a good ideal case. Yeah. And now that you are, let's say, more than halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Um, so are you looking what's next for you already? I wouldn't say I'm halfway through, though. Mm, I can't okay. say that, I think. Or could <laughs> I? So I've started my second year. Yeah. I've still got two years and a bit more left. Okay. And so, yeah, I can't say I'm... Just about half. Uh, just about half. Okay. okay. So you're asking me what could come next. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, it really depends on a lot of things. Yeah. I would say. Uh, no doubt this field mm -hmm. is something I would like to continue. So let's say vibration. Um, I could argue within this topic of vibration, maybe there's slightly different direction I could go. Could it be uh, more focused on having developing more computer models for very complicated systems that haven't been developed? Could it be making more meth? There's different. There could be more different types of methods that could solve these uh, complicated vibration uh, problems. Such as there's like this method, finite element, and all these like other method approximation methods, there could also be more developed ones. There's these sort of areas. There's also improvements of the vibration suppression, trying to reduce vibration. All these are different sort of directions, but they're all still in vibration. You could argue, could I be after this? Could I shift more to a different focus? That's quite possible. Um, but then again, this also depends on the opportunity. There are times where there's not much opportunity for this sort of focus and vibration at this time, but there's a large, uh, you know, people are largely focused on this type of f um, direction and vibration. So you will have to adapt to that. But uh, that's just the way it works. You will have, to, you'll never find, you know, something that will perfectly align with your interest all the time that that won't happen. It can it just, uh, yeah, you need a bit of luck for that. <laughs> These kind of opportunities don't tend to open up more than three months in advance than when they expect you to start. Yeah. So it's good to have an eye on, on the horizon, but you definitely can't get your heart set on a particular project until you're really into PhD crunch time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's say that you are yeah almost halfway through <laughs> your PhD. Um, no so, pressure. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> um, w w what advice would you do? Would you give to your younger self? To my younger self, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, to my younger self, okay. Um, I suppose it's a bit difficult. So this isn't to say that I suppose I should have, um, it would have been better if I have gotten just a bit more involved in this study in a better way. So, okay, let me take a step back. 
one big difference between this PhD and this undergrad. In undergrad, you would try to just understand all these from lecture notes and videos and all the courses um, to just try and pass an exam. A lot of the stuff doesn't actually stay with you unless maybe some materials will stay with you. Um, whereas in the PhD, it's a bit different. You have to try and get to the bottom of everything. You can't, it's not, it's a different sort of way. You can't just, let me just learn this and then get to the exam pass and that's it. It's not like that. You really have to know what you're doing, right. no doubt. And um, I suppose one thing that could have helped me a bit better, if you, if you were wanting to do a PhD, it's very important to have a good, strong background. The better background you have, the more prepared you will be. So one thing I could say is try to... I should have maybe gotten a bit more involved with the studying from that kind of sense is try to really understand everything if I could. But one thing I, sh I need to also highlight is there is this big factor, especially in the UK, is this factor of uh, very limited time. You've got very limited, you need to learn like four courses and you have all these four exams in like three months or something like that, which is may not be realistic to get a very good deep understanding of everything. But uh, you could say I wish I would went to a bit more lectures. <laughs> um, maybe don't just rely fully on lecture materials, that what the lecturer gives you. Sometimes the courses, you know, the, what the lecturer gives you is not always sufficient. Have a little look at some external sources to help you understand better. Um, so things like that, maybe yeah could have helped a bit yeah, that's one little advice i would probably give to my younger self and another thing could be the reason is although you need to invest a bit more time in your undergrad life um although undergrad is an amazing time um one thing about it is when the work environment starts everything changes so don't be too how do i say you know uh, stuck in that bubble <laughs> uh in undergrad but do just try have as much fun as you can. But just keep uh, don't remove your focus. I would say. Don't. Yeah, it's good to be aware that there are opportunities out there, and getting stuck into something can give you, you know, a head start on whatever you do next. But equally well, we don't want to be telling people to go away and work yourself to the yeah, bone, no. <laughs> spend every summer doing industry experience rather than taking a break that you know undergrads need. Yeah. So that there is a fine line. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Obviously, this advice I would say, this is maybe something, an advice I would give to someone who specifically wants to do maybe a funded PhD. Mm. No doubt he has to put in a bit more of an effort than maybe some, than an average person would. Um, that's just the reality. Yeah. I would no doubt say that. But if generally, if, if someone wants to go into industry, it, it, it depends on their direction. But for a PhD, a funded PhD especially, I would say no doubt one person, the person would have to put a bit of effort more in the undergrad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, on that note, earlier you mentioned that you had, say, three or four interviews. Oh, yeah. You were getting into <laughs> your funding. But I'm quite curious how that came about, because I'm, I'm on a fully funded NERC, Natural Environment Research Council PhD. And I just had the one 15-minute interview. So obviously there was a... 15 minutes. Yeah. Wow. So there was obviously <laughs> a very different process that goes into your funding than mine. I don't know if that's to do okay. with your research council or to do with the industry or both. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what it's to do with, but um, 
you could say I can't reveal too much information, but you could say, obviously, when I saw this opportunity and tried to get in touch with the supervisor and all that, um, it took a bit of time for me to actually reach the supervisor because he was also very busy. He had some a lot of other industrial stuff. But eventually when I got to meet him, um, we had about an hour, you could say 40 minutes discussion about, he was really asking why I wanted this opportunity because I sort of reached out for it. So he was asking me, is this the thing, you know, why do you want this opportunity? Can you not do this in other unis? Why this uni? Stuff like these kind of questions. And why do you want to do research? Why not industry? You know, all these typical kind of questions. So we had this like long discussion it was about 40 minutes and then the last 20 minutes uh, one of his um his phd students or postdoc uh, started asking me more technical questions you know to uh, solve this equation blah, blah, what is the difference between this some very specific stuff um i think i did okay in it i wouldn't say because it was sort of um i didn't really expect it <laughs> but uh, i did okay in that and then after some time this was like about a month i think i got sent an email saying to write this report with deriving all these like equations and stuff like that uh, i had to do that for them and send it to them um this was like a proper it was like a proper assignment <laughs> so uh because this was you know this stood in my way of trying to get into this phd this funded phd i tried to focus on doing that and then i send that through them and then after some time, they got back to me and said, basically, we are going to have another interview. And this was the trickiest one. And they were basically critically asking a lot of, you know, all of these like critical questions about this report I submitted. So they literally went through it almost line by line, <laughs> everything I wrote. So it was not an easy situation asking me everything. What do you mean by this? Can you just, you know, you have to really justify everything. Where did you get this information from? Oh, I've referenced it here, you know, and how, oh, how did you find this? You know, and a lot of these like technical questions, how did this, why is this um, equation the more correct one than this one? What's unique about it? all these like specific stuff. And after that um, is where, after that interview finished is where then I had another little meeting <laughs> um, with the supervisor and then this was the proper offer you could say a proper offer he said okay after uh, your performance i think we can definitely accept you as a phd but um the the one that i kind of wanted to apply for was slightly different so he offered me a different sort of PhD, um, PhD, although it's all in vibration, it's all the similar idea, but you could just say that, let's just say one of them was more to do with wind turbines and this one's to do with pantograph. So the one I kind of wanted was something to do with wind turbines, but it's a similar idea, vibration, reducing vibration with this new design, blah, blah, blah. And he said, although uh, he said he understood he, that I wanted that, but the problem is there is no current funding for this project. Uh, whereas this one for the railway, this is like a project that's going to start literally in like a month or like literally in line where you could start your PhD and you could just get the funding for this one straight away. Whereas if you still want a wind turbine one, you could get it, but you would have to make a very convincing research proposal and stuff like that and submit it to the industry and you probably have more meetings with them and try to convince them of some idea that for them to give you funding which was 
no idea after going through the all those interviews and stuff like that i didn't want to go through more so whereas this one you could just get start straight away so i remember asking my dad about this what his advice was he said no doubt just take the one the one that you can start straight away you don't you do not want to go through this this uh, scenario of trying to convince the industry and stuff like that especially at this stage this is not the stage for it just go with what's available and yeah and i took this uh this option and in a way i'm glad i did because to be fair this one has one unique thing about this one is it involves a lot of experiments as well as this computer modeling stuff whereas the other one would not involve any experiments mm-hmm. so so good um uh, glad i took it you could say yeah it sounds like a really exciting project yeah, and yeah, yeah. when the funding's already there you've got nothing to lose exactly yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah basically glad i took uh, that one <laughs> So excellent. So can you say more about on the other side? You are hardworking, but how do you relax? Do you have any hobbies, any oh, extracurricular? Uh, how do activities? I relax? That's a very interesting question to ask you, me. You right can now. relax. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that's my response. <laughs> that would be my response. <laughs> okay. And then if if in an ideal situation right now, let's say I'm at a critical because this is involved with projects mm-hmm. and there's all these, um, how can I say it? there's this um you have to really deliver a lot of things in time uh that's as much as i'll say for now but um in ideal scenarios what i would do or what i did do and have to stop doing is basically one thing i do enjoy doing is playing basketball quite a lot um i started playing basketball like before covid then covid came in then i had to stop um because i didn't really find a chance to play it but then i went back into playing basketball for a bit and then started the phd but hopefully uh, eventually i could get back into playing this um so that's one thing in sport i really enjoy doing i do go to the gym i have stopped going for a while but uh i do plan to go back um uh, those are the two sort of main sort of sports i do enjoy playing other uh sports as well i do play football i don't i haven't like competed properly in football or anything like that i'm mostly focused on basketball but i do enjoy playing any other sports um swimming is very relaxing (laughs) i do plan on going back to swimming again it is i used to a while ago i used to basically have this very relaxing case where i would go to the gym and then take take a swim afterwards Mm, that's so good it's it is it's stretching out afterwards exactly yeah yeah, yeah. that's uh, I do hopefully plan on getting back to doing stuff like that yeah. soon. But right now, you could say the priorities for the work, it's at a critical yeah. stage. Yeah. But this would be the ideal case, you could say. This mm-hmm. is what I would do. And when you've done your team sports, the particularly basketball and football, has that been with the university? Has that been for like an engineering department uh, specific or friends outside? For basketball, it's been... Uh, I have played uh, for the uni team, but not for like the top uni team or anything like yeah. that for mainly for like kind of like the starters team so i've played for that in my undergrad in basketball and we had have we have had some competitions so that's been fun but for football i've not joined any proper team it's just playing um most uh, back in the days to play back with my friends and sometimes now and again we played oh keeping in um one thing you just uh, remind me of is uh, i used to play fifa a lot with my <laughs> uh with my friends back in undergrad 
uh, there's this one person who I reckon I'm still better than him, even though he 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 only beats me because he only beats me now because he plays it like every day. Okay, I barely ever play him, and I once managed to beat him. I know he was just a bit drunk, but I still managed to 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 beat him two 0 with a with a low. I think I was I was playing Aberdeen, and he was playing some Premier League like top Premier League team. It was. It was probably money. He's a money night. If I think it was money United. and I still managed to beat him. He, he and he was only a bit drunk. So <laughs> technically, I reckon I'm still better than him. He can't say he's better than me because he's he he plays this every day and stuff like that. So you know, I I, I think I have it in me. If you know what I mean. If yeah. I were to play every day and stuff like that, I think I would thrash him honestly. But um, yeah, I do I do play FIFA a lot. I used to play a lot when I was a kid. I was one of those people who uh, forgot which one it was, but there was this thing called Ultimate Team. And it was um, it almost destroyed my life, but <laughs> it was uh, uh, managed to bear it. But yeah, yeah, I used to play FIFA. But... Is it one of these dangers of a ranked ladder? Yeah, so there's yeah. there's pressure on every game. Yeah, <laughs> to yeah. keep coming back. <laughs> yeah, and also um, in Ultimate Team, if I remember, you have to like actually manage a real team. You have to buy the contracts for each player. The contracts will run out, and with all that kind of pressure of that, you have to also keep winning beating other players to yeah. get the money to get these contracts and, and it was just uh, but I've stopped the ultimate yeah. team I, but now I don't that's think... on your CV as yeah, budget, yeah, budget management I mean. <laughs> exactly budget yeah, yeah. that's on my CV yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, <laughs> I've stopped you know um, uh, doing stuff like that ultimate team is where I've just stopped not, not going back to it again uh, but yeah I still yeah, enjoy maybe... playing FIFA with uh, all my friends and beating them and yeah on a more casual side there's there's nothing stopping you in in the department saying, all right, we're going to have Friday, the lab is closed, 6 p.m. We're going to have a little FIFA tournament this weekend. <laughs> uh, I wish I could say that, yeah. Maybe eventually. Yeah, 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 when things down. There is... I don't think there's a lot of people that do... Play, well, it doesn't matter if they've played FIFA or not before. They oh. need to try it, exactly. Exactly, yeah. So once the, the experiments are done... Replace the, the rig, <laughs> yeah. Replace the <laughs> the, the, the the setup, put a, a flat screen TV, flat screen TV the Xbox or PS4, or whatever. Uh, turn it into a gaming experiment. That's it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as engineers, I'm sure you can come up with all kinds of fun alternatives to a controller to use for peripherals. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could make it uh, instead of using the. Could there be better controllers for mm. you know for for the Xbox and stuff like that. We could develop a new controller. You know, this is all part of research engineering. We could definitely, I think that would be a good idea. I'll mention it to my supervisor. There yeah. you go. <laughs> Inspiration for others <laughs> and uh, creating opportunities for others inside of the podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Michel, for this no uh, great talk. Thanks for presenting your uh, research. Thanks very much. Thank yeah, you, Rory, for Super being interesting. Here. Yeah. Thanks for Glad having me along. Glad to be here. Thanks, everyone. Hello, future Rory here. As promised, I've now done some research, and I can confirm that the Inertal was initially developed by the McLaren F1 team, who first ran it at the 2005 Spanish Grand Prix, which was won by McLaren driver Kimi Raikkonen. McLaren went on to win 10 of the remaining 15 races that season, narrowly finishing second in both the Individual and Constructors' Championships, behind Renault and a young Fernando Alonso. In F1 cars, the Inerta acted to reduce variations in pressure between the wheels and the tarmac. 
In other words, as the body of the car bounced up and down, the inerta would dampen vertical forces acting on the wheels, allowing the tyres to retain better mechanical grip on the road. While McLaren didn't actually win a championship until Lewis Hamilton's first individual title in 2008, inerta technology is widely considered to have given them a competitive edge over the competition, especially after tune mass damper systems, first introduced by Renault, were outlawed in 2006. If you're a regular follower of F1, you might have heard of inerters under a different name, the J-Damper, or Jounce Damper, which was a codename used by McLaren to basically mislead any team that tried to copy their technology. Given that Malcolm Smith's initial work was published openly, you'd think that the other teams would have been a lot quicker to design their own inerters. But as Michel's PhD project shows, it takes a lot of work to take an academic principle and successfully apply it in a specific engineering context. Which is probably why J-Dampers became one of the major talking points in the controversial McLaren-Renault-Ferrari spying scandals of 2007. J-Dampers were widely adopted by other F1 teams after the 2008 season, when the University of Cambridge signed a license agreement with American supplier Penske Racing Shocks, allowing any team to buy them. They then remained a common feature of F1 cars right up until last year, when the 2022 rule changes outlawed them in favour of simplified suspension systems. If you'd like to read more about inerters, then I'll post some links to the PGRcast Twitter feed. Thank you all for listening to PGRcast. This episode was brought to you by the wider PGRcast team, produced by Luca, co-hosted by Rory, edited and mixed by Michael Rambilo. PGRcast episodes are available on soundcloud.com forward slash PGRcast and all major podcast platforms. We hope you enjoyed this episode and press play again soon.